Our Father, we're grateful that you have brought us together this morning on this, your Lord's Day. And I pray that you'll bless our time together as we <laughs> dive back into this book of Hebrews, both monumental and challenging, but also encouraging and exhorting us to continue to seek after you and to set our eyes and our gaze on you, Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. And Lord, I know that my friends who are here today are in all kinds of different stories and narratives and complexities of life. So many things that we don't even know how to talk about with one another. I pray that a word of encouragement will come today from you. I hope, Lord, that's rooted in the gospel. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you'll put up with my voice this morning, um, I'm sorry about that. It it sounds worse than it is, I think. Um, I was just telling somebody this morning, you know, we have four children, as all of you know, and they, they, they have, they're, they're petri dishes of disease. It just seems that way. It's like I, I just look at them and just want you know squirt, squirt stuff all over. All right, so we're, we're, in, we're in Hebrews again this morning, um, and uh, we're, we're broaching in chapter 3. But it's worth stepping back just a little bit. I tend to do this anyway in my teaching, so back up a little bit, put the car in reverse, and then, and then put it into drive. Um, chapter 1 and chapter 2 together of Hebrews function as a major section of the book of Hebrews. We're going into another one this morning. So chapters 1 and chap- chapters 2 of Hebrews are comparing and contrasting Jesus with the angels. Right? And there's a lot of questions about why that particular comparing and contrasting is going on with angels. And we don't know for sure. Um, except for the fact that angels, and as we'll see today, Moses probably played a very important role um, within most of a Jewish worldview in the first century that we're dealing with here, or even early second century A.D. But Jesus is compared to angels. He's, he's better than angels. And then you have all these, I call it the machine gun of Bible verses that come to you in chapter 1 and then in chapter 2. To what angel did it ever say, today you are my son, I have begotten you? No angel's been talked to that way. Um, and then we get into chapter 2 and we see a rather creative reading here from the author to the Hebrews. Maybe not so creative, but um, an interesting reading of Psalm chapter 8, where it says that the Son of Man has been made a little bit lower than the angels for a while. What is that? Well, what's the claim there? The claim there is that Jesus has been... Um, identify with humanity in his incarnation. I mean, the whole argument up until this point is Jesus is better than angels because Jesus is God, right? He is the very radiance of the glory of God. He's the image of God. He's the imprint of God. So Jesus is better than any angelic intermediary being because we cannot speak about God without speaking about Jesus in the same breath. So that's the movement here. And then when you get into chapter 2, there's another argument that's being brought to play, and that is, not only is Jesus God, Jesus has fully identified himself with humanity, with me and with you. And that identification of Jesus with humanity is the basis of our salvation and our hope. Now, if you can remember from last week, those of you who were here, um, no quiz today, uh, but for those of you here last week, chapter 2, verse 10 is, I think, a very important verse here. For it was fitting, that particular term there, it was fitting that He, for whom and by whom all things exist. Again, I don't, I don't think we have the words really 
to fully express what's being claimed here. Everything exists in Jesus. I, I mean, I, again, I, mean, I don't want to chase this rabbit trail again because we've talked enough about it, but I do think it's important to make the claim that for an early Christian worldview, and I use that term loosely, but for an early Christian understanding of their life and reality, Christianity or Trinitarian faith or what you confess this morning in morning prayer um, is not just a particular aspect of their being and their existence. I'm a member of this particular club. I'm a, I go to this particular golfing association. I do this particular vocation. And I'm a Christian that goes to this church. It, that, it didn't work. The silos weren't up and running within the early Christian world. Um, in other words, I do the Jesus thing because I want to make sure I get to go to heaven. right? And then everything else is just sort of do that on autopilot. It didn't work that way. All of reality, the whole of existence only made sense in light of the sustaining presence of Jesus in holding all things together. That's a claim about everything, right? Whether it's relationally, whether it's vocationally, whether it's, and you can just continue to add on to the list of whatever it means for you to be you, right? And for me to be me, it does not exist apart from the cosmic glue that Jesus brings in holding it all together, right? So that's the claim that's being made here in Hebrews chapter 2. Jesus He's, it's fitting that Jesus, who is the very means by which all things exist, that that same one should enter into the fray of humanity, taking on human flesh, becoming incarnate, and in incarnating himself to identify himself with human suffering and weakness. I, I mean, this, this is one of the answers in the Bible to the continual nagging problem of evil, Right? Um, we've talked about this before in various contexts, but I'll say it again. You know, th- there, there are difficulties in being a Christian, right? Um, I, I read uh, one author, a guy named David Bentley Hart, and he says, you know, the problem with today's atheists is they're not really great atheists, right? I, I, we, the church should have an enormous amount of respect for quality atheists, right? Um, and the church has known them from the beginning. There have been quality atheists from the beginning of the church's existence, um, and I, I, for example, I mean, I, I have students at Beeson who get really excited about apologetics and they want to, you know, they just want to win every argument for Jesus and, you know, whether it's a coffee shop. And I, I try to calm them down a little bit. Like, you know, it's, a, it's okay to lose a few arguments for Jesus. He can, he can handle it. Um, but I saw a debate one time uh, uh, with a Christian apologist and a professor from UCLA um, and they start going back and forth, and the professor from UCLA, or maybe it was uh, California Berkeley, I can't remember, uh, absolutely lit into the Christian uh, apologists regarding the problem of evil. That's the kind of thing that, frankly, gets all of us to think. I mean, if, if, you're th- if you're a thinking and feeling person, I'm not sure how you get away from um, the, the complexity of that. God is all-powerful, okay, and God is all-loving, okay, and Syria, Right, um, northern Iraq. Um, some of the horror stories that I'm sure you all have heard. I heard the story of a PCA missionary who's uh, serving in some of the mountains in north um, east Iraq, and what has happened to some of these Christian villages. I mean, if you don't read, if you can't read it, you don't want to, you couldn't believe it, sort of thing. Um, and and that that grabs both our imagination, it grabs our hearts, it makes 
Um, it makes it's a it's a legitimate detractor and conversation point when it comes to the Christian faith. And I think we would all do well, if I could give my own opinion on this, to just allow some of the hurt of that to stand. Because one of the answers that's given to the Bible in this, and I'm not saying this is an answer that resolves. So I'm not trying to give you any sort of philosophically crafty argument here. But one of the answers that at least is given in the book of Hebrews and other places as well is I might not be able to work out all the philosophical conundrums about the problem of evil in any way that could make someone who's hostile to the faith okay with it, right? I mean, I don't think I can do that. But what I can say is the gospel and the way in which it's presented in Hebrews, for example, emphasizes that Jesus, the one who holds all things together, enters into the very fray of that suffering and that suffering that is marked by our humanity. He's in it. Our God is a suffering God. And if you've re- you've re- some of you have read these books. You know Eli Wiesel, uh, Night. I mean, some of these books are horrifying. You think about the Holocaust and what's happened. Yesterday, we're, we've got sickness in the house. So I was on the couch, you know, flipping the channels. The Pianist was on. You remember this, this movie? Oh, what a horrible movie, right? I mean, it's just awful to think about the kind of things that have happened in modern civilized countries, right? So I, 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 can't, I can't undo all that for you. But what I can say is God in Jesus is not distantly removed from all of that watching dispassionately. He's in the middle of it. He's come into our humanity. And He did so in such a way that was fitting. Why? Because now we have a high priest who sits in the very throne room of God, fully God, fully man, and brings our humanity into His humanity. Jesus makes humanity what humanity is meant to be. And in His doing that, He... He knows what it is to suffer. He knows what it is to be tempted. To use the language of the psalmist, Jesus remembers our frame. He knows that we're just dust. He knows it. Um, so that's what I think the argument's being made here in, in Hebrews chapter 1 and 2. Jesus is God, right? In other words, so whatever your view is, it's got to be cranked up a notch because He's the one that holds all things together. Matter exists and holds together on its most basic atomic level because of Jesus. I can't work that out scientifically, but I, I believe that confessionally. And at the same time, that same overwhelming transcendent other who's nothing like you and me is at the same time like you and me in that He's taken on our flesh to identify Himself with us so that He could be a high priest forever before the Father by the Spirit in a way that's fitting because of our humanity. He knows who we are. He remembers our frame. So that's Hebrews 1 and 2. Right. Then you get into Hebrews chapter 3. In Hebrews chapter 3, uh, verses 1 through five ten, I guess we might give a big... Um, this is another big section that we're going to. Christ's faithful and merciful. So I just want to work through this with you, if that's okay with you, and I'll keep a, an eye on my time here. Uh, chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, and we'll, we'll call this the faithful Christ and the faithful Moses. Do you mind if I read this to you? If you have cell phones or whatever, you can look at them. Therefore, holy brethren, who share in a heavenly call, Consider Jesus, the Apostle, that's He's one who is sent from God, and the High Priest of our confession. He was faithful to Him who appointed Him, just as Moses also was faithful in God's house. 
Yet Jesus has been counted worthy of as, of as much more glory than Moses as the builder of a house has more honor than the house. This might not necessarily be a powerful metaphor for you, but this has got some traction for the author of the Hebrews. So a builder of a house gets more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later, but Christ was faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house if we hold fast our confidence in the pride of our hope. And I don't really like that translation. Can I give you this one? If we hold fast our confidence and our boasting that is hopeful, or our hopeful boasting. Okay. So a couple of things here. Let's step back and get an aerial view. Um, there's a comparison that's going on here, and it's rhetorically crafty. Jesus, Moses, right? A maker, a builder, and the house itself. God and the universe. Okay. And Jesus is Jesus. He's the maker. He's God. Moses on analogy is Moses. He's the house that was made on analogy to the universe that was made. So there's a movement that's being made here. And, it's a, and again, it's a crafty one. Everyone knows the story of Moses, right? And especially within the world within which the author to the Hebrews is working, Moses is the progenitor. He is the, the apex of, uh, of Jewish faith and belief. You know the story of the transfiguration. I mean, when the smoke clears... And they see the two figures that are there with Jesus. Who's standing there? It's Moses and Elijah. Representations of the law and the prophets. There they are with Jesus. And then they go away and then Jesus is left. One of my favorite lines in, in the Gospels. And Jesus was all by himself. Right? They were gone. Right? So there's a move that's being made here. We all know about Moses. And Moses is a unique figure in the Old Testament. Um, I would actually argue in a hard and fast way that the, the, the movement that you have from the book of Deuteronomy into the book of Joshua, there's a significant break there. Because Moses was a servant of God, as Hebrews is saying. Moses is a servant of God. Joshua is a servant of Moses. See that move there? Moses is a servant of God. Joshua is a servant of, of Moses. So Moses... Um, and this is the language that's used in Deuteronomy as well, Moses encountered God and interacted with God face to face. No figure operated that way in the history of God's redemption in the Old Testament, face to face. Everything else was derivative from Moses, but Moses actually ministered to God and talked with God face to face. Um, and, but, he, but here's the move, right? Moses spoke with God face to face, and he saw God's glory. But the author of the Hebrews is emphasizing Jesus is God's face. And Jesus is God's glory. So Moses spoke with God face to face. Jesus is God's face. Moses saw God's glory. Jesus is God's glory. And it's important to keep before us here that there's a rhetorical move that's being made. This is not intended as a denigration of Moses. It's not intended to say, Moses played his role, and now he's gone, he's somewhere else. It's not a denigration of Moses. It's an affirmation of the importance of Moses. Moses was faithful. He was a faithful servant. And he continues to play his role. But Moses doesn't even come close 
in comparison to who Jesus is in his person and work. All right. So there's a few things I'd like to reflect on with you here. A few things, namely four. All right. Uh, number one, we have an emphasis in this, these first six verses here of chapter three that Jesus is faithful. Jesus is faithful. Verse two, he, that is Jesus, was faithful to him who appointed him. Verse 6, but Christ was faithful over God's house as a son. Which is a strange thing to say, isn't it, about God, right? Fully God, fully man. But what have we just come out of in chapter 2? An emphasis that for a little while, Jesus made himself even lower than the angels by being identified as a human, by becoming a man. And in his humanity, Jesus was faithful. Uh, By the way, that statement right there, for my own, you know, cash money, is at the heart of the gospel. He was faithful. Um, The technical terms, if we want to use theological language, and I don't think this is always very helpful, but I'll use it right now. Jesus, we talk about Jesus' vicarious death all the time. He died in your place and my place. And that's right. He did do that. He suffered my death. He suffered for my sins on the cross. We we believe that. We confess that in and out every week. But we also want to confess that Jesus uh, lived vicariously in his humanity and in his life for me. Not, Not only did Jesus die for me, Jesus lived for me vicariously. It's one of those strange passages. You know, the... There are strange passages in the Bible, right? Um, I think think I've got one of my colleagues at Beeson calls that passage in Matthew when Jesus dies and then all the graves empty out and dead people are walking around. He calls that the thriller passage, right? I mean, it's a Michael Jackson. This crowd can get it. Um, I mean, it's it's like there's strange places in the Bible. One of the one of the, the, the little turns of phrases in Matthew's gospel that befuddles me on some level, but I think we have a sense of what Matthew is saying. Jesus comes to John the Baptist and he's baptized. And, you know, there's a little repartee back and forth, a rat-tat-tat, and John's like, I can't do this to you. I'm not worthy to to tie your shoes. And Jesus says, well, like God normally does with the servants, you're going to do it and just baptize me. Um, And then Jesus comes up out of the water and it says that he did this in order to fulfill all righteousness. What does that mean? I don't really know in full, to be honest. Right? I don't know in full. But I think at least in part, what Jesus is doing in his baptism is identifying himself with us. He's identifying himself with humanity, with sinful humanity, in need of purging and the cleansing waters of baptism. And he does so in order to fulfill all righteousness. He is living our life for our lives for us. He is keeping the law for us. He's fulfilling the law for you and for me. I find that enormously encouraging in my own struggles of faith and life, right? Why? Because I know that my prayer life, right? It's just my prayer life's not good enough to ever be anything to write home to mom about. But his was. My my faith, my faithfulness, it's weak, faltering, it's human. But his faithfulness, his faith, his obedience... His attendance to the law, His 
his complete giving of himself to others in acts of love with no thought of anything in return. I don't even know what that's like, right? Valentine's Day yesterday, give to get, right? What's it? Quid pro quo? <laughs> um, and I think this is, this is uh, but, but not, not Jesus, right? Not Jesus. He lived in absolute meekness and humility and he lived your life for you. I find great hope in that. He's a faithful high priest. And in his high priestly role, that's what he's doing. I know our weak and sinful humans that we've come to redeem. Oh, there's Genelette again doing what he's doing. But I'm going to intercede for him. And I'm going to remind you, Father, that I lived my life for him. And I died my death for him. And that's why he's here participating in our very life together. Right? He's our faithful high priest. So Jesus was a faithful. Number two, Jesus is our high priest. And look what it says here in verse 6. He's faithful over God's house as a son. What does it mean, God's house as a son? He's talking about you and me, right? We are the temple of the living God in this sense. The, 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 um, if I can use a, a, from St. Augustine in the early church, St. Augustine understood the church itself, the body, to be so organically tied to the head that is Jesus that you cannot speak about the one without speaking of the other. Now, he's the head. We're not the head. But we're so organically linked in this body metaphor that you cannot speak about the one without the other. And as our faithful high priest, he's a, he's a high priest over God's house, over God's temple that's over you and over me so he's a high priest in that regard and he's a high priest forever he's interceding you think about john calvin's famous phrase god jesus does not sit idly in heaven it's not a, jesus is not in a far side cartoon you know on the throne have i known it's gonna be so boring up here i'd have brought a magazine do you remember that old far side right if i know it's so bad i brought a magazine jesus is active in his kingly role right now as our high priest he's active and his activity is primarily marked by his intercession for you and for me. That he's praying for you and for me. Um, I wasn't planning on sort of going down this road today, but here we are, right? Um, isn't it fascinating to you? It certainly is to me that in John's Gospel, it's a tidal wave building and moving to the passion. That's how John's Gospel is built. I mean, you just get a sense from the get-go. I'm not revealing my glory yet. I'm not revealing my glory. I'm holding something back. Well, what is it you're holding back? It's the cross. Right? That's the pinnacle of God's revelation of himself in his, in his glory. And what does Jesus do in a long chapter before we, we go right into the Passion in chapter 18? A whole chapter of Jesus praying. He's praying. And I believe that John 17 stands as an enduring testimony, not just to what Jesus did, although I do believe that, but it stands as an enduring testimony to what the exalted Christ does even now. He's praying. He's remembering you to the Father and reminding the Father that these here that you gave me are mine. And because of that, they're yours as well. Right? Similar to how Moses prayed. Remember that encounter in Exodus 33? God says, go down to your people. They're all, they're a mess, worshiping in this calf. And then how does Moses pray? Uh, by the way, they're not my people. They're, they're your people, right? Jesus is reminding the Father. And, and, and anyway, you get it. Number three. Number three. Uh, we are his house, sacred community. I'll, I'll, I'll pass off on that one. And then number four. 
And we are His house if we hold fast our confidence in the boast of our hope. Well, now we start getting into the tough stuff, right? We are His house if we hold fast. So the question here is, what is the holding fast? What does that entail? Because there's a kind of holding fast that can be a holding fast that turns in on the self to look to the self for the security of eternal salvation or or final destination. There's that kind of holding fast. I'm going to look to myself and measure myself to make sure that I'm checking. That's not the move that's being made here. It's to confidence and it's to the boasting that we have of hope. What does that mean? Um, the only way that I can make sense of it fully is to go back to the Old Testament again. What does it say in Habakkuk 2.4? The just shall live by faith. Right? Um, Romans, faith everywhere. Faith, faith, faith. And then you get into Romans 8, and Paul all of a sudden begins to talk about hope. We are saved by hope, Paul says in Romans 8. Like, goodness, Paul, you're confusing. Because I think for Paul, faith and hope are flip sides of the same coin. What is the faith in? What's the hope in? And by the way, biblical hope's not our kind of psychological, romanticized hope, right? Um, I married my wife. We celebrated 15 years this, this week, anniversary. Married my wife 15 years. I hope she gives me five more, right? It's not that kind of hope. It's... Uh, <laughs> Um, and she said she would five more, but she said, you know, we'll talk then. After that, we'll see what we extend the contract. You know, but um, but it's not that kind of hope. It's uh, an assured confidence in the promises of God, despite the reality of our given circumstances. That's what Hebrews is all about from beginning to end. Are you going to hold fast to what God has promised you in Jesus? Because He's better than angels. He's certainly better than Moses, and Moses is quite impressive. Matter of fact, he's our faithful high priest who remembers you. He's the one that actually entered into the Holy of Holies and atoned for your sins. He's the source of your faith. We're going to get to this in Hebrews 12. He's the source of your faith. He's the goal of your faith. He's everything. So the author to the Hebrews here is not calling on these people to pull themselves up by their moral bootstraps or to turn in and look at the quality of their faith. Look how much faith I have. Right? It's not that. Whatever faith you do have, is it going to be focused on that one who made a promise to you in His Son? And will you hold fast to that promise, to the only boasting that you can do? This is so Pauline here. If you're going to boast about anything in your life, Paul says, let it be in the Lord. Why? Because the Lord from beginning to end has accomplished it all for us. He's my wisdom. He's my justification. He's my strength. He's, he's everything. So that's what's being called. That's what the, the Hebrews are being called on to here. Not to a turning in on the self, but will we hold fast to what God has claimed and promised us in His Son? Even when it doesn't seem like all that's working out. And that's the illustration that he goes on to from here. All right, let me see the time. Yeah, that's the illustration that he goes on to from here. In, in verse 7, and then I'll stop. 
Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, when you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. They always go astray in their hearts. They, they've not known my ways. And so I swore in my wrath, they shall never enter into my rest. Well, a lot to look at here. Okay, but this, this is a quotation of the Venita. Right, right here in Hebrews chapter 3. So I wanted to look at that with you this morning and then I'll be done. He's quoting Psalm 95, but I'll be a little part of it. Can I read to you all of Psalm 95? Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into His presence with thanksgiving, making a joyful noise to Him with songs of praise. Why? Because the Lord is a great God. He's a King above all gods. In His hands are the depths of the earth, the heights of the mountains are His also, the sea, the dry land, He made all of it. O come, let us worship and bow down, let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for He is our God, and we are the people of His passion, the sheep of His hand. We sing that part a lot around here. Oh, there's the next part. Oh, that today you would hearken to His voice. Don't harden your hearts as at the Meribah. I was on the day of Massah in the wilderness. This is all about that time in Kadesh Barnea when the Israelites, Numbers 14, Numbers chapter 20, the Israelites said, you know what? Uh, we'd like to go back to Egypt. You don't mind. This whole promise of your salvation, Canaan, float, milk honey and all that, doesn't seem to be working out real well. Uh, we saw what happened at the Red Sea. We saw your great deliverance. Remember Passover? We've been talking about that for a long time. But um, we'd like to go back to Egypt. First class, we'll even go coach. But we all want to go back to Egypt. And what does God? God sends snakes and... Bad, bad scene, bad scene. Don't do that to me, he's saying here. Because they didn't enter into my rest because of that. And that's the argument that the author of the Hebrews is making, right? He's making an argument, an encouraging argument. Hey, it happened back in the wilderness. Don't think it can't happen in the church too, right? Take heed. And if you'll notice here, he says to take heed both to ourselves and he also says and let us encourage one another this in other words we, we need to be encouraging one another um, and, and this, this is how i wanted to end today but I, I, there's a famous picture of john calvin on his deathbed looking as doleful as ever the man struggled with hemorrhoids he wasn't a very i did you don't want to drink a beer with calvin he's not that kind of guy but i still love him dearly he's got a deep place in my heart for calvin he's on his deathbed he's got a little hoodie on it looks horrible right and he's surrounded by people and, and i've and i've read the biograph, biographies on calvin i know what those people at least according to first-hand accounts are telling him you know what they're telling calvin on his deathbed Telling them that the gospel's true. Right? That that's that's what I think the author of the Hebrews is doing here. We need one another to be telling one another that, boy, even in the complexity of circumstances in life, it's true. And it's and it's all that we have. And if we let Psalm ninety five, the scary part, like don't test me, that part, be brought into the larger part, it's a singing faith, right? Let us sing to one another to remind ourselves of the great salvation that we have in jesus singing ourselves as we go um, the old african-american spirituals used to talk that way singing ourselves into the promised land and that's what i think we have here in psalm 95 a remembrance a challenge to remind ourselves that the gospel is true because on our deathbed and maybe let's not be so dramatic uh, tomorrow 
right? And uh, next year, and when the next complex circumstance in your life comes around, we need to be telling ourselves, and we need friends to be saying, hey, by the way, um, the gospel's true. So, Lord, I pray that you'll help us. Uh, we're, we're all pilgrims just uh, wandering to another place and another time. I pray that you'll fill our hearts with hope. Not a sort of romanticized hope, Lord, but an assured confidence that even when we don't feel like we're experiencing it at all, that what you say is true and what you've done for us in your Son is true. And we ask these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.